this could be Mother Nature's way of sort of basically saying that I think we all got a bit too smart, a bit too quick, and everyone just needs to slow the fuck down, all right? Say please and thank you, be nice, you know, let someone in in front of you uh, when you're sitting in traffic and, and give them a wave. And I, Sydney really did feel like a country town for, for a while there, and, and I, I, I sincerely hope that that, uh, that can continue in some guys. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The food industry offers such a rich journey and career path for so many. Chefs, for instance, know all too well their skills are needed all over the globe. It means they can have new adventures, obtain new skills, and create new experiences for others too. But the pandemic changed everything. And there are those that are about to embark on new journeys that had them halted overnight. Nigel Ward is the chef in residence at Uccello in Sydney. Nigel, how are you going? I'm bloody marvellous, mate. How are you? I'm good. It's good to have a chat. I'm looking forward to what you're going to tell us today, especially the fact that you signed a lease and paid a deposit for a new space in Chippendale and you were set to exchange literally days after the first lockdown in March. Can you tell us about that period? Yeah, I was... um. I was at a so I found the space and as it's uh, I was sort of buying a a business because the lease terms were really good and it was sort of ideal because it was actually pretty COVID ideal really because I was going to run some you know sort of a catering arm out of the upstairs area and uh, do private dining and you know do takeaway and and all that sort of have two arms sort of like a you know two level sort of Fratelli Paradiso style product um, and yeah we were sort of really deep into negotiations and um, the um, the, the the business owner solicitor sort of dragged the chain quite a lot, which turned out quite well in my favour. I got to buy him a beer one day if I ever meet him. But um, I was at a, I was at a wedding on the Friday, the twentieth, and um, we didn't really want to go to that wedding to be honest. But it was that, it was that sort of awkward period where you you didn't want to ruin someone's day, but then everyone was kind of like we're waiting for you know Scotty to make the announcement and. Um, and then we were there and we were literally at the reception and I think it was like no more than, I think it was no more than 20 inside, no dancing and all this. And I just looked around the room and we were like, everyone was just so, you know what I mean? Everyone was so close to each other. I just said to my wife, I was like, I think I might just sit outside for a while and, you know, just, <laughs> just, uh, just let this all sort of sink in. And, um, and I knew I was coming because we, my wife's French and I've um, uh, been speaking to a mate of mine who lives over there. Um, and he told me what was going to happen um, before it happened. He's an economist and he, he, he told me the writing was on the wall. So, yeah, I sort of, I'd, I'd, I'd paid a deposit and signed a, you know, I was negotiating a lease and I'd signed a sort of a sales advice and then this all happened. Um, and I was literally due to exchange contracts on the Tuesday, I think it was, which was, the, I think it was the exact day that everything got forced into lockdown. Um, so yeah, fortunately, I um, I managed to rescind the contract, and then I sort of had to try to chase the business broker for my deposit back because um, he was stuck in Chile and um, and he couldn't come home with COVID and everything else, and I couldn't make contact with him. But um, anyway, it all worked out well in the end, and um, well, worked out well, you know, obviously, but. It came at the end of a, you know, I guess it's sort of a three-year period where I'd been doing some consulting and sort of, you know, soul searching and looking at spaces and trying to find the ideal space and, you know, fell in love with this one. And it was just, 
it was just so gut-wrenching to be like to be there like just there and then just again something that out of your control just you know pulls the pulls the rug out from under your feet well as you say you'd spent those three years consulting and doing different things and you'd sort of decided on bricks and mortar how did you feel in the next sort of coming couple of months about the industry and about your role in the industry yeah that was um hasn't been fun to be honest um I was actually speaking to Dave Cockerell from um, from Kajiong Valley Olives the other day because um, he's going to come on board as our oil supplier and um, his son Rob, uh, who's the head chef at um, Benelong um, and used to be at Key, he he found himself in a similar, slightly worse situation than me in that he had to fire a ton of staff or you know lay off a ton of staff. But Dave was sort of saying you know his wife's working and he's there looking after a kid and. My wife's working from home and, you know, I was just there ready to finally have my time because <laughs> um, I've sort of, she helped me through the restaurant when I had Saga and um, and so it was my turn to sort of take the front seat with the, with the kid and let her shine and uh, it was a really bitter pill to swallow. You couldn't really say anything but like my wife's keeping her job going and working in the front room and I'm there, you know, they obviously we pulled, we pulled my daughter Polly out of daycare and um, I'm back to full-time full-time parenting, you know, just when it was uh, starting to turn around, you know. Not that I don't love my kid, but, you know, I don't think anyone loves their kid five days a week. That's why daycares are invented. You need a bit of a break. Um, but uh, progressively it got worse and worse. Um, I got pretty dark, uh, like, towards the end. Basically when we put her back in daycare, I started to reach out to other restaurateurs just saying – does anyone need a hand? Like, I'll come in and do be a CDP, whatever. I don't even want to get paid. I just want to, you know, I need some. I need to do something. I need to get out of the house. But JobKeeper's kind of put a bit of a freeze on that. And I think they all thought I was a bit nuts. They're like, what is it? What's the ex-owner of a one-hat restaurant doing wanting to sling pans on a Friday night? Um, but I was, I, was, I was genuine about it. But um, And then, you know, that, that didn't work out and... Um, I, I started just applying for jobs online, which I didn't want to, like, but I did. Um, and, you know, wasn't even getting phone calls back. I think, I really think people genuinely thought I'd lost it. And, I mean, the, the, the sort of, the best way I can explain it, uh, I was trying to think about a way to explain it to you, but um, well, I like ocean swimming with my mates. Like, we, we do it quite a lot. And I sort of had this image of, like, you know, the staircase that goes down into the ocean. And every time I, like, reached out to... Uh, ask someone for if they needed help or, you know, uh, try and get a job. I took another step closer to the ocean, you know, until a point where I I was underwater, you know, breathing through a straw and I just, yeah, it got pretty dark. And then, uh, yeah, and then old Frank Roberts um, gave me a call and um, uh, he's, he's the group GM for food and beverage of Maryvale and he's an old fan of my previous restaurant and we've sort of had chats over the years about doing something and... I've sort of turned down quite a few because I didn't think they were the right fit. But then, you know, when he tells me that they're reopening the flagship Italian on top of Ivy, it's, uh, you know, pretty pretty hard thing to say no to. You mentioned that this period of time has been quite hard for you to deal with and there were some pretty dark times. What, what were some of the things that helped you get through that period? Uh, it was uh, not much. I just, uh, I'd sort of... Well, I did a lot at the beginning. I sort of, you know, I did what everyone did, you know, which is um, just started baking bread and giving it away. And 
a funny story actually. I I did all these bread runs for people because you know you know this is during all the you know, toilet paper you know um, nut jobs in supermarkets and all that. No one wanted to go out, so I'd start on a Sunday morning doing a drop off to my friends, two of which had newborn kids, and you know didn't want to leave the house and just do something nice for other people, you know, like little gestures of kindness. I give some to my neighbours, you know, the local um, sort of deli uh, up the road from where I live, they work their asses off. So I'd cook dinners for them and take them in because they were getting slammed. And I actually just, even though in my head I I wasn't um, tremendously happy seeing the joy that my food could give other people sort of, um, uh, you know, got me through it but <laughs> sort of funny all my friends tried my bread and they're like oh you got to show me how to make it and you know I was like okay I'll give you some starter and um, they sent me these photos of these horrid looking loaves they were, I was like I think we'll call that a bit rustic hey um, and always about, about pretty much all of them on the same day about three weeks later rang me and they said how do you fix a dead starter <laughs> um, I said you don't you just go to the bakery and buy a loaf I think <laughs> Well, uh, many people have loved your food over the years and particularly Sagre, you made a real impact on the Sydney dining scene. Can you tell us about how Sagre started and, and what that journey was like for you? Sagre was, well, Sagre is like a food party, right? So you have a Sagre of tomatoes or a Sagre of mushrooms and it's basically a celebration of a particular ingredient at its most perfect point in time. And um, I you know, like every other person on this podcast was a bit shit at school and didn't go <laughs> and used to hang around at, um, at Italian cafes when I was, you know, 14 years old, smoking cigarettes and sipping macchiatos and thinking I was in Goodfellas. And, um, and it just sort of bit me, the Italian food bug. I used to cook after school because my parents, my dad's a doctor and they had a little local practice and they'd always work late. And so I'd cook dinners for, for, for the family and then that sort of continued after school and I got into a sales job and um, then I uh, went, that didn't really sort of, you know, suit me, but uh, went traveling in a camper van with um, <laughs> four other smelly blokes for a year um, in a VW transporter with, um, with no toilet and no shower, um, you know, sort of a bunch of 21-year-old blokes. You can imagine how the thing would have smelled. Um, but... Uh, I just started to go to the markets and I was, you know, we'd be going to these dive bars or local bars and just getting sloshed every night and then I'd be going to markets and buying produce and just cooking it. And it was just, one thing to remember is even, like I said, I was shit at school, but when I was like 14, I actually came into the Intercontinental and did um, voluntary work experience for my whole summer school holidays. Like, and I wanted to quit school and become a chef, but mum and dad were like, no, you got to just finish your HSC and then do it. So, um sort of delayed the process by about five or six years, but, you know, got there in the end. So I came back from, um, came back from overseas and um, uh, one of Dad's patients was the director of Ride TAFE, so he introduced me to him and sort of enrolled in, in, in Le Cordon Bleu just to do a private course because he didn't want to be a 27-year-old apprentice um, and went, went and saw Sean Moran with a bottle of homemade limoncello and asked for a job and uh, I think I was in there the next day. And uh, from there, you know, I did Sean's and um, that was amazing. Um, and, he, you know, he's still a little angel on my shoulder if I'm thinking about, you know, doing something a bit cowboy. It's like, nah, surely, surely he would pick that up. Don't do that. Um, went to Lucio's for a few years on and off, went over to Margaret River, made wine. And then, um, and then went back to Europe. Uh, 
where I did a bit of a food odyssey, you know. I, I basically did this loop of the Mediterranean, you know, doing France, Spain, Morocco, uh, Greece, Italy, um, just to sort of broaden my horizons a bit and take a break. And then uh, met my future wife in a little village in France. And, you know, she came over here, did a semester at uni, and then I went over to France but couldn't work because um, Sarkozy was chasing all the gypsies out. And... Uh, so, um, yeah, so I came home not knowing what was going to go on. She's there doing uni in, in, in Lyon and I'm back in Sydney. And um, after about, I don't know, about a month, I was just like, oh, fuck it. And then I got a visa and moved to the UK. And that's really, I'll say that, I'll say for the record that even since I was 14, I always wanted to have a restaurant. And my sales job was just to try and earn enough money so I could go and get a restaurant. But obviously I worked out over the years that the, the experience was more important than the money and that I'd just be chucking money down the drain, especially when you look at the level that Sydney's at. So, um, yeah, I went to London and uh, Glenn, my, um, actually Glenn, my, for my former sous chef and best friend at Sagra, who actually taught me a larder at Sean's back in the day. He'd been at the River Cafe for like two years and um, I didn't really want to go there. Um, so I just didn't really want to work in a big space. And he said, you should go check out this place called Trullo, which one of the River Cafe alumnus, Jordan Frieda, who was front of house, and Tim Seattleton, who'd done some work there and some other really good London restaurants, had opened this little neighbourhood bistro in, um, on, on Highbury Corner. And um, went and met Timmy and we got along with the house on fire and they'd only been open like six months. And it was just, it was kind of like, I don't know, the River Cafe style food, but, you know, there was freedom of expression. We could do what we wanted. Blake, one of my, my new, you know, now best mate, uh, who I met there um, was sous chef at the time, and then we just got had this gun crew of like all sort of you know senior CDP sous level guys that were like either Aussie, Irish, or British, and it was just one of those teams when like the kitchen just hums, and it was like that for two years, and it, we just you know it was like I was like I want to make sausages, and the next day I walk in the cool room and Blake had ordered a pig, you know it was that kind of thing. It's like well we're doing it now, and it was just this amazing um, sort of fostering of talent and creativity you know the produce coming in these amalfi lemons flown in from italy and tardivo from the veneto and it was just such a beautiful place to cook in plus you know having these amazing owners like like tim and jordan who just kind of really they the, the business was transparent they sort of you know rather than keeping the what they were earning and the cost and everything else hidden from staff they kind of gave all their staff ownership of the business which taught me a lot about what I put forward in Sagra. And I mean, so much so that like Tim and Jordan and Blake and all these guys came to my wedding when we got married in France. When I opened Sagra, I was literally doing Skype calls with Tim and Jordan every night being like, what the fuck do I do with this guy? Or, you know, what happens here? And they just helped me through a lot of things. And um, I'm very thankful for, for all those guys. And that, that I think without the Trullo experience, um, I guess the, the offering that I made at Saga and my, it was, it was sort of where I ingrained my style, you know, before it was kind of like I was cooking Sean's food or I was cooking Logan's food from Lucio's. Um, but that's when I really started being, it became Nigel's food with elements of all those things. Right. But just, yeah, that, that that's when it sort of really developed. Well, Saga had such an impact and it kind of changed the idea of what it means to get a hat in Sydney. You know, it was kind of that time when, was a realization that restaurants didn't have to be about cutlery and napery and all of these things. Tell us about Sagra and what you did, what you created. Well, that's right. I just wanted to open an affordable restaurant with really good food, and not charge too much. 
Um, and <laughs> but I think we were sort of fortunate when we open. Um, one thing that's good, I guess it's quite relevant is that I, I really studied the, the business side of things really hard. I wasn't just like, oh, I'm a chef. I want to put, you know, put up some nice food and, you know, oh, why, why am I not making any money? Like I, I'd, I've got a pretty decent business mind. So I was in my London flat, like measuring out the, my, my living room with masking tape, working out exactly how many covers I could get in a space. And like I'd bring my best mate back in Sydney and he'd go look at restaurant spaces for me and he'd be in there with a the tape measure before I got home. <laughs> wow. So I was, I was, we, were inspecting, we were inspecting venues from the other side of the world. That's how keen I was. Um, and as far as, yeah, I think when we opened, there was quite a few that opened around that time that was sort of the Young Turks from the Hatted restaurants. You know, there was um, Moon Park and, you know, Josephine Perry did her thing a bit and, uh, you know, the Acme guys did their thing. And it was just this kind of, it felt a bit like that sort of revolution in Paris, you know, where um, the Young Turks kind of came up and they didn't give the, you didn't give the finger to the Hatted restaurant establishment, but it was more kind of like, you know what? I'm just going to do my thing and, you know, hopefully people will like it. And I think that's been, you know, an amazing contributor to the Sydney dining scene. Um, but as far as, yeah, I mean, Saga, it was a bit tough in the beginning uh, because Glenn, my, my, my best mate, who's, who was a sous chef, and Pele, who worked under me at, um, at Trullo as my apprentice, he actually moved to Australia to help me open the restaurant. Um, and then I got in Alessandro, uh, who was the manager at Lucho's before where I used to work and, um, and my wife and or girlfriend at the time, you know? And so there were, there were days, there's just too many people that are close to you in terms of personality. So like you as a business owner are trying to get stuff done and not have to like provide a reason, which chefs don't generally like doing. Well, I remember one service, like I went into my, I went, my wife came in and I think I'd said something a bit snarky to her, you know, because we were just open, it was high stress. And I was like, darling, can you take this to table seven, please? And she just looked at me and she said, no, and walked out of the kitchen. <laughs> and so it was that, but that was also amazing because I really couldn't have done what, what we did. So we couldn't have done what we did without the fact that we were this family that just, you know, everyone was as passionate about getting it, um, getting it right. And to the point where I think a month after we opened, there was a wedding for a mate down in Burrowang. And I said to Steph, we're going to get this place staffed up so that four weeks in, we're going to take the weekend off. Um, and we did. And Pat Nurse and Miffy Ricky walked in for dinner that night. And I was one and a half hours drive away down in the Southern Highlands. <laughs> um, and of course, the reviews speak for themselves based on, I'm pretty sure if I ever wanted a reviewer to come in the restaurant, all I needed to do was just not be there. <laughs> um, honestly. I think you were the only one. I remember seeing you down on, 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 on table 11. And I was like, ah, okay. Maybe this will be the first shit review. But even you thought it was okay. <laughs> so why did you let go of the restaurant? Uh, I burned out. I, um, uh, we had the, you know, there was a work cover incident involving a pasta machine, which um, I had a full work cover investigation, you know. And we just bought a house, you know. And I, I was worried we might lose the house and... Um, it went on and on and on forever. So there was that. There was, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and for the record, there was no, you know, there, there was no negligence in terms of the work cover investigation. It was just obviously a very stressful thing when with, within a f the first year of opening a business, you're, you've got to deal with that level of stress and try and be creative and keep it together and manage a team. Um, and I'm fortunate that I had all these guys like Glenn and, and, and Pele and Ale and Steph, you know, helping me out. And... Um, and yeah, so 
and then I think what happened basically was it started to it started to taper a little bit in terms of profitability around the end of year three. Um, unbeknownst to me, that's because the manager was raping about fifteen hundred bucks out of the till every week, um, and <laughs> claimed to be a good mate of mine. And, you know, we'd play tennis together and have dinners together, and he was just doing it all behind my back. Uh, and I may not have sold if I'd actually, you know, if I was earning a decent amount of money out of it, I probably wouldn't have sold. But year, years one, two, and three were amazing, and then it just dropped. And um, my intention was always to to have the business for five years, that because you're never going to get the first one right. That's what Jordan always taught me. You know, he was kind of like, just get in there. You know, we opened the doors for seventy grand, um, and we paid that off within about four months, and then it was just pure profit after that. And I was like, right, there's two years to go on the lease. Um, here's what I'm, um, here's what I'm earning on a, uh, you know, I guess on a day, you know, on a year year level. And if I could achieve this sale price, then it's the equivalent of what my salary would be over the next two years, and I haven't got to worry about getting rid of the tables and chairs. Um, there was that side of it, and it also coincided with the fact that um, a lot of those key staff, like Glenn and and the rest, had sort of moved on and. You know, one thing my dad, my, you know, my, my dad's got his own practice, um, medical practice, as I said, and uh, one piece of advice he gave me was that uh, when you're, um, he said, I, I got into medicine to help sick people. And one thing you'll realize when you run a business is, um, is that running a business is, a small business is, it actually robs you of the ability to do the very thing you love which is be creative and, and cook. Um, and it's sort of reached that point, you know. Uh, and it's sort of been robbing me of my creativity. And, and, and I've, I could still come up with ideas and all that. But, I mean, a typical day was like i get in at 7 a.m. I'd ring the fish guy, Eli, from Martins and, you know, sort of say, you know, because we were charging 30 bucks a day and I was like, right, what do you got, you know. Please don't say blue mackerel again. <laughs> and... And then I'd do prep all day and come up with menu ideas, you know, and butcher pigs and do all that stuff. And then I'd go home and have a shower and come back at five and do front of house. And that was six days a week. And then I'd go back in on Sunday and do the book work. Um, so you reach a point where that's just, uh, you know, not feasible. And, you know, obviously there was no financial incentive. So I sort of thought maybe it's time to move on. And uh, my two apprentices, Mike and Ed, um, uh, put forward an offer to buy the business and, um, I thought it was a nice way of sort of, you know, passing the baton so that um, the next generation of chefs could, you know, continue uh, to run a, you know, give them an opportunity to run a business where they completed their apprenticeship. One of the things I loved about Sagra was your uh, love of produce and how you champion great produce and understand you're a bit of a dab hand with live eels. <laughs> Me, it was, um, it was, it was, uh, Logan, actually, <laughs> there was this little apprentice. He was a bit of a smart ass, and he'd turn up late, and he was coming from the northern beaches, and he just didn't really give a shit. And he was missing TAFE classes and stuff. So Logan rang his um, his TAFE instructor and said, "I just wanted to let you know what's going on." And the TAFE instructor said, "Well, yeah, I'm going to fail him if he doesn't complete his um, his dispatch and fillet live seafood component." <laughs> so Logan's like, "I can handle that for you." So he rang Jules from Johto and said. Um, I need you to find me some conger eels and I want you to make sure they're really big and they're really angry. <laughs> and, um, so they turned in the next day and, and, and Josh, 
Josh opened the box and just absolutely shat chickens. Like, <laughs> and uh, Logan explained what to do and handed him the cleaver. And, uh, and then he, one thing he didn't tell him to do was to pick it up with a tea towel because they're slippery as buggery. So he tried to pick it up and the thing just slipped out of his hands and, and then and sort of slithed his way under the fridge. And so we're all there going, pick it up. And so he, he jumps on the floor and he's wriggling around with his arms under the fridges trying to, um, trying to, get, trying to get this live eel out and his pants are falling halfway down his ass. And, uh, yeah, it was just uh, – we all had a laugh and a beer about it after. But, yeah, Logan reached out. Logan's half married, you know, with his big sleeve tats. He just reached under with one arm and picked it up and, um, and, and put it out of its misery. But, uh, yeah, pretty funny moment. You know, with Uccello, as you mentioned a bit earlier – um, which is a renowned Italian restaurant by the Maryvale Group. How different is what you're cooking there to the days of Sagra? Yeah, it's not that different, to be honest. It's just um, you know, I can charge more than thirty bucks a main, so we get to buy we get to buy some better stuff. Um, the brief Frank Roberts gave me was kind of you know you need we need to up the ante. You know, everyone's here to forget about their summer woes and be here for sort of you know five hours and. You know, you know, that kind of style. And that's what I tried to do. But it was I, I wrote 80% of the menu in about two minutes. And the remaining 20%, I just, it wasn't me. And and when we did the tasting um, with Justin, even he sort of said, these are the things that stood out to me. And they were all things that were sort of new incarnations of things I'd done at Saga. And he was just like, just do you. Um, so it's just me, you know. Uh, and I guess just having that availability to get some, some, you know, super premium produce like they've got an offer at, you know, Burt's and Fred's and Mimi's and some of the other restaurants in the group. But, uh, and yeah, I guess the other difference is um, having a big team, you know, never really worked in a really big team. It's a bit daunting, to be honest. I think about 14 chefs on the roster. Um, and, but uh, that, I guess the definitive thing for me is after all this stuff and, you know, talking about, I guess, you know, quasi-depression and everything else, um, it's been such a joy just to cook and not to worry about who's going to post the job ad or when do I have to do payroll. It's like it's just all handled. And so it's just my, my, my pen can't keep up, my hand can't keep up with my brain in terms of the ideas that, that keep coming through. I'm barely sleeping because I'm just so excited um, to be creative again and lead a team and, you know, pass on that knowledge to the next generation of chefs, you know, um, like, like Sean and Logan did with me. And uh, that's, that's a big focus of what we're doing is uh, we're sort of, we're, we're taking some of the graduates from Peter's apprenticeship program, um, the, the in-house Maryvale apprenticeship program. And I think we've got another three apprentices coming on. So basically, you know, two, uh, sorry, a third to, yeah, a bit more than a third of the kitchen's pretty green. Um, and that's exciting, you know, for me just to teach, teach some young guys some new skills. And, ho I mean, hopefully uh, with COVID, you know, um, there can be some lobby to the government in terms of, you know, um, re-incentivising skills programs and trades and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think that there's been a massive shortage of good, you know, good quality tradespeople or apprentices coming through kitchen doors in the last five years and it really needs addressing given the shortage in the industry. You mentioned how much you're loving cooking again and having a big team. What What is Nigel Ward on the plate? Can you give us an idea of some of the things you're loving to cook at the moment? What am I loving to cook at the moment? I just uh, I just made these two chocolate tarts and I think I'm about to take them down to all the HR chicks and see which one they like the most. <laughs> so that's that. But um, 
I guess having a big team means that I can be really, you know, in a small team, you can't really do peachy too much on a menu, which is a hand-rolled eggless noodle because you just haven't got enough hands. But we can, you know, and I do ravioli, whereas now we're going to do a caramelle, which it looks like a little bonbon, like a little caramel wrapper. So just getting a bit more intricate with the pastas and pushing my knowledge. Um, and moving forward, I guess, probably not during the silly season, but maybe, you know, next year we might, um, you know, I'd like to get whole base in, um, and start teaching the young guys about butchery and doing some curing. And then, you know, if we have a good summer, I'll hit, uh, I'll hit Frank up for a curing chamber so we can start doing some, uh, some salumi and stuff like that. That'd be really exciting. But just, um, yeah, yeah, why not? I mean, that was, I kind of got a bit, that was the sort of other thing about Sagra, you know, like you just didn't have the space to be able to do what you wanted. Like we had a, we had a gal pole in the in the cool room for hanging up whole pigs, but you know, you get a pig and a lamb in it and you literally couldn't walk through the door of the cool room. Um, so it's nice to have some space to be able to do, you know, and we've got wood fire ovens and, and, and char grills and, you know, they weren't really using them that much. I'm like, let's get these things active. Like, this is fire. You know, this is like, this is just an exciting thing to do with this, with this style of food. So to answer your question, I really, I think the element of fire is something that, uh, I mean, I know it's, you know, a la mode at the moment, but it's always been quite important to me. And we have a wood fired barbecue at my parents' place every Sunday, you know, so and at, at Trullo, we only cooked on a charcoal barbecue for main courses. So it's something that I'm not, uh, it's not alien to me, but I just haven't had the opportunity to do it in my own space. So, you know, that's, that's like burying eggplants overnight in the charcoals and, you know, artichokes and, you know, really, you know, getting that element of fire, not just as a like, I'm grilling a steak during service, but as like, let's get it doing stuff for me 24 hours a day in different various forms. You've had quite a a roller coaster ride in the last six months of nearly opening a venue again and having some dark times and having the chance to run a big team with a successful restaurant. But what sort of positives have come out of this experience? And do you think it's changed uh, human behavior for all of us, this experience? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, it's obviously COVID's not a great thing. Um, but I guess when we look at sort of the principles and the way I cook and, and my attitude towards food, there are some things there that I think are prevalent that people need to sort of take stock of. And they sort of did when it first happened and then everyone just forgot and went back to being fucking competitive old Sydney siders again. But I mean, you, think about the small holder, right? Like a small scale farmer that, you know, when people get forced into isolation, his life's probably not changing, right? Because... He grows all his own stuff, um, you know, he's used to being away from people, he can be ve- relatively self-sufficient, um, he or she, sorry, um, and I just think that people need to start focusing a little bit more on uh, what's what's grown in their backyard, you know, it's the, and that's the very essence of the way I cook, you know, it's the way the Italians cook, it's like, you know, you get neighbouring villages that, you know, argue about how a ribolita should be prepared, it's probably going to be a punch-on, Um and that, 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 in a food sense, I think that passion for, for locality is really, really important, especially now. Um, you know, in some ways, I, I really think that uh, this, this, this could be Mother Nature's way of sort of basically saying that I think we all got a bit too smart, a bit too quick, and everyone just needs to slow the fuck down, all right? Say please and thank you, be nice, you know, let someone in in front of you uh, when you're sitting in traffic and, and give them a wave and... It was, it was like that in Sydney, that, that level of courtesy. And then I think it was around like Queen's birthday weekend. I was on the road and it was just mayhem. I'm like, oh, well, back to normal, which I, th- I, I thought to be quite a shame. 
um, I, Sydney really did feel like a country town for for a while there, and and I, I, I sincerely hope that that uh, that can continue in some guys. What's your hope moving forward? You've got a, a new job now and a new team, and you you're very excited about it and you can't sleep. How does the next year look and what's the opportunities? I'm going to say it on the radio that you can tell my wife that I want another kid. <laughs> so she can't say she can't say no now because everyone knows. Um, she's been waiting to have another kid with me, but she said, you've got to get a job first. So there's no excuse now, darling. <laughs> so hopefully there's that. Um, that'd be great. Uh, but I'm just, you know what? This is just... I'm just going to – I think at the moment the plan is to only open a cello for nine months until June. So I'm really just getting to the next to next June. I'm not looking on commercial web, real estate websites to look for the next project because I actually really am enjoying working here. And maybe in 20 years when I'm 55 and my knees are creaky, I might go and buy a little shop somewhere and just do a love restaurant, you know, um, <laughs> until I do myself an injury. But, but for the time being, uh, I just – want to look at you know look at the stoves in front of me and just get that focus because you know like I've fallen back in love with cooking but I've really I really you know I want to have a relationship with her again well mate you do cook beautiful food and it's awesome to hear that you're uh, cooking again we'd love to have you on deep in the weeds today please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon yeah mate and thanks so much you asked me a question before like what sort of got me through those uh dark and difficult times it really was hearing a lot of how there were a lot of peers that were in similar situations and uh and how they dealt with it so you know i really 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 appreciate what you've done here thanks mate keep in touch this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep stay tuned as we share the stories of australia's hospo community suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic special thanks to executive producer rob Locke for making this all happen Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.